0: You are listening to the Impact Church Podcast. To learn more about Impact Church, visit us online at impactharlem.org. You can also check us out on social media. Happy Easter, Impact Church. And I'm so glad to be here. This is literally the Super Bowl for Christians. Easter is what we celebrate more than anything else because it truly, truly, truly defines our faith. And I had a lot of back and forth mentally about today, and it was about whether I wanted to dress up a little more than usual. So I decided this morning that I would dress up A little more Uh, still didn't tuck my shirt in so I apologize for those of you who are really just uh, a really big on tucking your shirt in that's just not me my belly pokes out a little bit too much for that but even my oldest daughter before I left the house said wow even daddy is dressing up for Easter so everyone is looking good and I'm just glad that we're here together to celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive all around the world People are celebrating the fact that Jesus is alive. And that is the reason that we're here. We're here because Jesus is alive. We're here every Sunday morning to celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive. And it just so happens that on Easter Sunday, we get to really celebrate. We get to throw a party because it's that important to us. Now, I was reading earlier this week, and I read about a really young pastor who decided that since Easter is the biggest service of the year, the most attended, which is statistically true, more people come to church on Easter than any other Sunday, he decided he was going to tell everything he had wanted to say in that one service. So he preached for 90 minutes. And the next year, Easter was their least attended service (laughs) of the year. And they say that's a true story. I don't know, but I just want, want you to be encouraged this morning. I'm not preaching for 90 minutes. I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to stick to the notes, and we're just going to let the Spirit do what the Spirit does. I was listening to Andy Stanley, who is just one of, one of the Bible teachers that I kind of try to follow and listen to a little bit, and he, he said this. He said, if we really want to understand something, then we must go back to the starting point. Everything has a starting point. Every job, every journey, every living thing has a starting point. You had a starting point. Some of you were started on purpose. Some of you were started on accident. But we're still glad that you made it, and we're glad that you're here with us. Every romance has a starting point. Some of you remember your first romance. You were nine. It was your cousin. And fortunately, you kind of grew out of that, unless you're from Alabama, but we won't talk about that. This is what I want us to do today. I want us to understand that even our faith has a starting point. There's a basis for our faith. And for some of us, it was what our grandma told us or what our parents told us was true. For some of us, it was what the priest or the pastor told us. For some of us, it was what we learned in school. And for a while, as we were young, that really That really satisfied us as the foundation for our faith. But as we got older, we began to really question some things maybe. What do I really believe about God? How can I truly know that God is who he says he is? How can I truly know what God is even saying? How can I know the truth about faith and about Christianity? And I remember my freshman year of college, I was in North Georgia at a Christian school and we had chapel service, like a church service, Monday through Thursday, every day. And I'm an 18, 19 year old kid away from home for the first time. I did not want to go to church every day. I'm just going to be honest with you. So I played baseball up there and as everyone knows, baseball players aren't Christians. So we came up with this, we came up with this elaborate plan. You had to badge into chapel and they had trusted students that would count the attendance for chapel and you got like two skips a semester and if you went over that you had to do what they called gratis which was punishment you would have to clean the dorm or something like that so the baseball players, some of us came up with a plan hey this week you go to chapel here's all our badges badge us in And that worked for a while, and then people started getting convicted of that. And I was like, well, we got to come up with another plan. So I became really good friends with one of the girls that counted the attendance. So no matter if I was there or not, I was there. And it worked great. But one chapel service that I did make it to, our campus pastor talked about being a t-shirt Christian. And I had never heard that before. I didn't even know what he was talking about. But as he was preaching, he continued to speak directly to me it seemed like. He said that when many people get to college and or our age at 18, 19, 20, we begin to realize that we've been wearing the faith of someone else. We've been wearing our parents' faith or our grandparents' faith or whoever it was for you, that's the faith that we've put on and we've believed that to be true because that's what we've known, but we've never examined Christianity and faith on our own. And in that moment at 18 years old, I realized, hey, I've listened to a lot of people in my life, and I've believed them, and I'm not saying that they didn't tell me the truth, but I'm an analytical guy, and I need to figure this out on my own. I need to figure out what God really said and what's really true about him for myself. Because what mama said or what, grandmama said or what the pastor said, I want you to understand this morning, that is not sufficient starting point for your faith. That we have to examine on our own. That it has to be something that's personal to us. And that's what I want us to do today. I want us to get to a place where we can admit that, yeah, we we may have some doubts about this whole Christianity thing. That there's a lot of questions that we really won't answer, that we don't have answered. And if we're honest about that this morning, then I think that we can, we can move from that place to really a, a good basis of our personal faith. And if you look through scripture, you see that even Peter dealt with this type of doubt. Peter was a pretty trusting guy. He followed Jesus really early on in Jesus' ministry. He even got other people to follow Jesus. He believed what Jesus said. And then all of a sudden, Jesus was arrested, put on trial, and killed. And Peter is just, man, what is going on? It got to a place where he struggled with his faith so much that he outright denied even being a follower of Jesus. He said, I don't even know him. I don't know this Jesus That you speak of. He he really got to a place where he was struggling with his faith that much. So I don't want you to be discouraged if you have questions, if you have doubts. What I want us to do today is to be honest about those, and I want us to see how the resurrection changed Peter's life. And I believe that the resurrection will change ours in the same way. But before we get there, man, I think we have to prove whether or not the Resurrection is true. Because if we don't know that it's true, then there's no way we can truly believe that it happened. There's no way that it will will really change who we are as individuals. So I want to give to you some some theories of the empty tomb. The fact that the tomb was empty is is widely agreed upon between scholars. That's really not up for debate. Every scholar, for the most part, believes that a man named Jesus was born, that he was executed by the Romans, that he was placed in a tomb, and three days later that the tomb was empty. The question then becomes, how did the tomb get empty? And there's really only three theories for that. But before we jump into the theories, I just want us to read John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which is John's name for himself, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. But, uh, but both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John wanted to include how athletic he was. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And that detail is very important as we move on. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. God, I pray that you speak through your spirit this morning, that you change hearts, that you change lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter walked into that tomb a discouraged, defeated doubter. He walked out as the most important figure of the New Testament church. Literally moments after this, the disciples would look to, Jesus, or look to Peter to lead them. What changed? What kind of revelation did he have? It wasn't that he all of a sudden understood Jesus' teaching about the Good Samaritan or something else. No, it was the fact that he went to a tomb that should have had a body, but it didn't. The resurrection changed his life. So what are the theories about the empty tomb? How did the tomb get empty? Here's theory number one. Someone stole the body. Someone stole the body. Then the question is, well, who stole it? And to have a suspect, you have to have a means and a motive. So let's let's start with the first suspect, which is the Romans. The Romans definitely had the means to steal the body. Pilate had ordered a garrison of guards at the tomb, which was 16 guards, four would stand and watch while the other 12 would kind of sit in a semicircle and they would just rotate, sleeping and holding watch. They definitely had the means to do it, but what would have been their motive? They were the ones that killed Jesus in the first place. So you say, well, maybe they did it as a joke. But we saw last week that Pilate allowed a Roman seal to be placed on the tomb. And if the seal was tampered with, whoever tampered with the seal would face death. And the Romans knew this. So would a joke really be worth their life? So it seems to me that the Romans just, it's not a very good option. So suspect number two would be the Jews. Jews. The only motive I can thank for the Jews stealing the body of Jesus is so that when the disciples would claim resurrection, the Jews could produce the body and say, no, he didn't really rise from the dead. So the movement would, would die. It would be over. That would be it. Can you imagine the disciples just claiming Jesus resurrected and then here come the Jews with the body and say, nope, here's the body, he's dead. Man, it would have stopped, but they didn't do that. They didn't produce a body. So suspect number three, the disciples. First question is, how did they get past the garrison of guards? How would they sneak past? And even if they did, that's where the detail of the neatly folded linen comes into play. Like robbers don't usually worry about what they're leaving behind. So if they did get past the guards, they're in a hurry. They're not going to fold the cloths in the tomb. But even more important than that let's look at the testimony of the disciples so if this was just some hoax if we look throughout history all religious hoaxes had something in common the leaders would would attain some kind of power or money or sex or some kind of gratification from that hoax if we look at the the disciples we see that they had no power they were persecuted their entire lives to the point of death, every single one of them. They had no money, they were notoriously poor. Notoriously poor, if they did get any money, they gave it away. And they didn't get some, uh, some crazy amount of sexual gratification from this, for they taught that sex was only to be between two people in a monogamous marriage. And they went their whole lives testifying that we can be joyful in this life without any of that. We can suffer anything in this world because we've seen the risen Savior and we know what lies ahead in the future. So if this really would have been a hoax, would they have lived their entire lives testifying to this? So it seems to me that there's really no compelling evidence that the body of Jesus was stolen. So theory number two would be that Jesus never really died. That he just fainted, and they put him in the tomb, and then he woke up while he was in the tomb and got out. There's a couple problems with this theory. Number one is that the Romans were experts at crucifixion and execution. That's what they did. Roman law actually said if they pulled someone down before they were dead, then they would face the same punishment. Just to be sure, they got a spear, and they poked Jesus in the heart. And we see a very important detail that blood and water came out A detail that they didn't know was important back then. But we do now medically know that, that when someone dies, the blood clots in that area and it separates from the watery serum. So we can, we can know that Jesus was already dead before they stuck him with the spear. They didn't know that back then but we know that detail now medically which is amazing to me that the spirit had them put that detail in scripture so that we have even more proof today that Jesus did in fact die but let's say that he he didn't he's in the tomb how did he get past the guards when he got out in his weakened condition how did he move the stone How did he get past the guards and then appear to his disciples in his weakened, battered condition and say, I'm the savior of the world. I've defeated death. Go testify to this. So theory number two just doesn't really hold water. So here's theory number three that Jesus actually rose from the dead. This is by far the simplest and most compelling explanation. That Jesus was crucified, that he did die, that he was buried, and that three days later he resurrected. He appeared to his disciples, he commissioned them to go and testify of the resurrection to the entire world, and they gladly did so even to the point of death. And you say, well, if that's the most simple and most compelling explanation, then why isn't it universally accepted? And I want to answer that with a quote from German philosopher Wolfhard Ponenberg. He says this, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event and second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. So let's start with an unusual event. This was supernatural and there's just some people that are just going to block off anything supernatural. They're closed-minded to that. They just won't consider that supernatural could even happen. And then the second thing he says, which I think is even more substantial, is that you have to change the way that you live. If you truly believe that Jesus resurrected, then that means he's Lord over morality. He's Lord over history, he's Lord over politics, he's Lord over everything. And some of us just don't want to accept the fact that, man, if he really is who he says he is, then we're going to have to change who we are in light of who he is. And that happens. I had a professor in college who refused to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead because there was so much suffering in the world. But see, that's not an honest assessment of the evidence. That's a dismissal of the evidence because of some other belief and feeling. So what I want us to do today is I want us to look at the evidence of the resurrection on its own terms. I don't want us to to have any preconceived ideas and thoughts that block us away from really examining the evidence of the resurrection. J.D. Greer, who is the, the senior pastor of Summit Church in North Carolina, says this about his own life, that when he was really young as a pastor, he almost walked away from his faith. But someone challenged him to do what he calls a thought experiment. And the experiment was, what if you could go back to the resurrection and Jesus says, hey, I am who I say I am. I have defeated death. I know you have questions, but I'm not gonna answer your questions until eternity. So I'm just gonna ask that you trust me because I'm telling you and I'm showing you that I'm the resurrection. Just trust me for the next 30, 40, 50 years and then I will answer all your questions in eternity. Would you be willing to suspend your objections in light of the reality of the resurrection? Would you be willing to say, hey, I do have questions. I do have doubts, but I know that Jesus really did defeat death. I know that he really is the resurrection. So I'm going to suspend my objections and just focus on the evidence at hand. Would you be willing to do that? And that's the question that JD was asked. And he said he knew the answer was absolutely. I would be willing to suspend my objections if I knew that Jesus really defeated death. And you say, well, I can't go back to the resurrection. There's no way. But the evidence is strong enough to prove to us that the resurrection indeed happened. The problem is, we allow what we think about other things. Man, if God was just here more, there wouldn't be so much suffering. If God really did exist, my life wouldn't have turned out the way that it is. If God really did exist, then this wouldn't be the way it is, or this wouldn't have happened. And, 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 I empathize with you, but I'm telling you that is not an honest assessment of the evidence of the resurrection. That's closing your mind off to the fact that the resurrection indeed could be real based on its own terms, because we're allowing our feelings and beliefs about other things to cloud the truth. So this morning, I'm pleading with you to suspend your objections at least for the next 15 minutes and really look at the evidence of the resurrection on its own terms. But here's the cool part, that the story doesn't stop. Yeah, Jesus defeated death, but it changed Peter. And it could change us the same way. You say, well, how did it change Peter? What did the empty tomb mean for Peter? This is what it meant. Number one is that Jesus was who he said he was. That all the things that Jesus taught, all the things that Jesus said, all the things that Jesus claimed to be, because he resurrected, he was those things. He was the resurrection. He was the life. He was the savior of the world. And an empty tomb caused Peter to realize that Jesus was really the savior of the world. So much so that we see that Peter gets into some kind of argument with some really smart theologians and scholars and they're saying, hey, there's no way that Jesus was the Messiah because of X, Y, and Z. And then Peter responds in Acts chapter 4 verse 19. He says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, You must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, Peter's saying, hey, I'm not saying that I'm smarter than you. You guys have more degrees hanging on the wall than a thermometer. But what I'm saying is we've seen this guy who died, who resurrected and defeated death. And that trumps any degrees that you have. We've seen it with our own eyes. We've heard it with our own ears, and we've touched it with our own hands. The resurrection is true, and that's our testimony. I don't care how many degrees you have. I don't care how smart you think you are. Jesus, rising from the dead, trumps all of that. And that's Peter's testimony after the empty tomb. That Jesus is who he says he is. But keep in mind that Peter, that Peter struggled. Man, Peter struggled in his faith before this. Peter denied Jesus, straight up denied him, said, I don't know him. And I'm wondering if our doubts have been to the point in our life where we say, I don't even know Jesus. I'm not even sure that I could ever repair the relationship that I'm supposed to have with him. But then if we can place ourselves in Peter's spot, And witness the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus and suspend our objections, man then we can't help but to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. We can't help but to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And and that's special, that's important. Number two is this, Peter realized that his past did not define him. Peter realized that his past did not define him. Again, he was, he was struggling. He was questioning. He was denying. But he realized because of the resurrection, his past no longer defined who he was. And you may be sitting here and you see some people dressed up and they look pretty good. I know that I look pretty decent today and I appreciate y'all telling me that. You may think you walked into church at Banana Republic this morning. (laughs) But I know some things about the people at this church that you may not know. And if you did know, you probably wouldn't be sitting so close to them. But there's people sitting in this room that were in the grips of addiction for years and years. There's people in this room that have been unfaithful to their spouse and almost ruined their family. And maybe some did ruin their family. There's people sitting in this room that have spent time in prison. There's people sitting in this room that had a heart filled with bitterness and racism and hate. But God changed them. Not because they were decent people that needed a second chance. God changed them because they were dead people that needed life. And that's what the resurrection is about. God breathed life into a dead body. He breathed courage into a doubting Peter. He breathed love into a murderous Paul. And he wants to breathe new life into you. That's the importance and the power of the resurrection. You realize that you know what, my past doesn't define me. And this is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two things that Peter sees here. One, living hope. And hope in this context is whatever you believe gains you acceptance before God. And for a lot of us, it's if, if I'm good enough, then I can be accepted. And, we, and we've seen that throughout this series, that no matter how good you are, you'll never be good enough. Some of us kind of view God with a little balance and our good and our bad on either side, and we're just hoping our good outweighs the bad. But Peter says, no, I have a living hope, because my hope beat death. My hope defeated death. My hope resurrected from the grave. My hope is now standing at the right hand of God and he is my acceptance before God. So when someone comes and brings an accusation against you and says, hey, they don't deserve to go to heaven. Jesus says, hey, I paid the price. I already paid that. They, they can come not because of them, but because of me. And the resurrection was God's declaration that Jesus' payment was enough. Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father as our acceptance. It's not about what What We do it's not about the the good things that we do in life or none of that and a lot of people believe that all Religions teach the same thing and for the most part that's true But this is where the gospel is completely different The gospel says it doesn't matter how good you are. You could never accept or be accepted by God on your own terms on your own merit but Jesus because he rescued humanity because he went to the cross, because he bore our sinfulness, because he defeated death, we're accepted as Christ followers. Not because of us, not because I'm special. Man, I'm confident that if I was to die for some reason right now, I know this is a little dark for some of you, but before my body hit this floor, my soul would be in the presence of God. And you can say, man, that's, that's pretty arrogant. That's pretty cocky. But no, it's, it's not because of me. It's not because I'm a special person. It's because he's already taken my place. It's because he's paid the penalty. It's because I'm accepted because of Jesus, not because of me. And the resurrection proved that to Peter. It doesn't matter about your past. That doesn't define you. Let me tell you what defines you. It's the blood of Jesus in your life. Once you've accepted that and began to follow after him as your Lord and Savior. Number three is this. Not only did Peter realize that Jesus was who he said he was, not only did Peter realize that his past didn't define him, he realized that his future was sealed. First Peter 1 Peter 1.4, just continuing to read, says to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. One thing you learn as you get older is that all things spoil. All things begin to spoil. Riches spoil, and if you somehow hold on to them that you can pass on to your kids, it's going to spoil them and they'll blow it. Health begins to fade. And this is, this is true in my life. I used to be able to work a 12-hour shift on a Friday, get off work, go straight to a softball field and play one pitch softball tournament till three o'clock the next morning, go home, shower, get an hour of sleep, and go back to work Saturday for another 12 hour shift. And I was young. <laughs> now I get in bed and complain about my shoulder hurting and my back hurting, and Ashley's like, Well, what'd you do today? I watched the, the Braves. Like, I, I don't really know what, what's happening, but our health begins to fade. Everything in life eventually spoils or fades. And to me, this is one of the biggest contrasts between a believer and an unbeliever and how they approach this. For the unbeliever, there's really no hope at the end. It's just full of darkness. And if you're just one of those people that the, the fortunes of life just throws at you a, a bad fortune, that you just have to deal with it and you just become part of that. But as a believer... The mindset's completely different. I'm reminded of Joni Erickson Tata, who was in a diving accident at a very early age and she was paralyzed from the neck down. And she would talk about how she would feel sadness when she would watch her dive team swimming and diving and just friends playing around. And she's still alive. But she's been in a wheelchair for over 50 years. And she was at church one day and the pastor had a big prayer moment and asked everyone to just kneel and pray and she caught herself getting upset because she realized that she couldn't kneel. I mean she's just bound to this wheelchair but she came to the realization that the very first time that she gets new legs in heaven that she's gonna drop to glorify knees and praise Jesus. And that's the difference between the way that an unbeliever looks at their future and the way that a Christ follower looks at theirs. Peter knew that nothing would spoil for him in eternity. That his future was sealed by the resurrection. That Jesus had taking care of everything. And this changed Peter's life. Again, Peter would become the leader of the New Testament movement. The disciples would look to Peter. And Peter's life changed simply because he went to a tomb that should have had a body in it, but it didn't. And Jesus appears to him and says, I am who I say I am. And I know you have questions, Peter, and I know that I'm going to leave you guys, and I know that y'all are being uh, persecuted, but I'm just asking you to trust me. I'm the resurrection, and my question for you today is, can you suspend your objections enough to consider the evidence on its own terms and to truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And when you do that, you know that your past no longer defines you. And that your future is sealed in Christ. I'm going to close with a story. I have two daughters. And I love them. I never didn't really know that I could be a girl dad. And then we had our first daughter. And I had no clue how to be a dad. I'm still learning nine years later how to do it. But then... Two and a half years later, we had another little girl and I got a little better with the girls. We were done having kids, two girls was enough for me and then we had another kid. Um, (laughs) Four years later, maybe five, it was a long time, it wasn't supposed to happen. And secretly, I was hoping, everybody thought I wanted a boy. Like I know you want your boy. I played baseball my whole life and the girls, my oldest daughter's amazing at the sport. She just doesn't care anything about it. My youngest daughter would try to care, she's not good. And so everybody thought, well, he must want a little boy. And secretly I'm like, no, I kind of want another girl. I'm kind of used to it by now. We have a lot of clothes. I won't have to buy any more clothes, which is probably my biggest reason I'm very cheap but because of my girls, I've kind of learned about some princesses and stuff, the, you know, Cinderella and all that. So the, the story of Cinderella, to me, really tells the story of, of the gospel. It really tells the story of the resurrection. And you know the story. Cinderella, she is, she's surrounded by an evil stepmother and two evil stepsisters. And she's just treated and told that she's worthless and that she's just not worth anything. And then everything kind of changes for her one night. And she goes to this bar and she's got on these glass slippers and she meets the prince. Everything's going as it should. Life is good. And then the clock strikes midnight and she's back to that life of of despair. The life of worthlessness. And the only thing she has is that glass slipper. And I want you to know something this morning that The resurrection is that glass slipper. The good thing about the story is the prince never forgets her. The prince has the other glass slipper. And he goes door to door to door to door until he finds her. And God is saying, hey, I have the other one. I'm giving you the the glass slipper. Here's the resurrection. Here's the death defeated. Here's where you can truly accept Jesus and begin to follow him. It's real. The resurrection really happened. There's sufficient evidence to prove that the resurrection took place. Is it enough for you? Because we don't have to live in a world with an evil stepmother who is the enemy just trying to tell us that we're worthless and the two evil stepsisters, which which is just flesh and the lies of the world. We don't have to listen to them say you're worthless. Your past will never allow you into heaven. Your doubts will never allow you into heaven. We don't have to listen to that anymore. Because God said, hey, your payment was sufficient through Jesus. And it's a free gift for you. All you have to do is accept it. It's a free gift. And this morning you may be sitting here and you may have some objections and some doubts of your own. But I want you to really think about The resurrection of Jesus. And if that is true, how can your life ever be the same? There's people in here that all have a next step to take every single person in this room. Everybody's next step is different. But some of you have never taken the step to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Some of you have never said, hey, you know what? I believe that that's true. And I want to follow him. I'm going to suspend my objections and I'm going to not dismiss the evidence of the resurrection because of some way that I feel. I'm going to look at that on its own terms. And I'm going to follow after Jesus. And I'm going to trust that in eternity, he'll answer my questions for me. And for some of you, that's the step you need to take this morning. You need to put your faith in Jesus. The starting point and the basis for our faith is the resurrection. And this morning, it could be that the starting point of your faith is today. Thank you for joining us at the Impact Church Podcast. For this and other messages, visit us online at impactharlem.org. In the meantime, you can subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it on iTunes, and share it with your friends on social media. Once again, thanks for joining us at the Impact Church Podcast.